Welcome to Hillcrest Chapel Audio. We hope today's message will help you grow. If you're newer with us, I want to introduce myself. My name's Tim. I get to serve on staff here, and I'd like to say just grace and peace to you this morning. We're in a series of teachings on this letter by a leader in the Jesus movement by the name of Paul to uh, his friends in the city called Philippi, and we're continuing to look at it. Last week, we looked at this, this section, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, and we're actually going to look at the same section again today. And last week, some of us decided we're going to try and actually memorize this section. And so um, I wanted to invite you, if you want to do that, if you have been doing that, if you... We have cards with this section of scripture on it, and they're available by the, the sound booth on your way out this morning, if that would be helpful to you. But just to, it's a way of kind of uh, internalizing this part of scripture. And we're going to actually look at this chunk uh, today as well. So uh, this morning, we're going to, like I said, we're going to continue on Philippians 2, 5 through 11, but we're going to actually begin our teaching on Philippians 2 in the book of Genesis because uh, we want to we, we, we warm up. We want to work our way into it. So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3. If you want to follow along in your own Bible, uh, it's like on page 3. Turn to the left. If you hit the table of contents, you've gone too far. So um, I'm going to read, and the words will also be on the screen above. This is where we're going to begin today. So Genesis 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman... Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. All right. So this is... Uh, this is the beginning of the scriptures, a story of kind of the cosmos. And um, this morning, we're not going to talk about when this happened or, or kind of if you had a video camera, what would have, you know, what you would have seen through it. You know, what's the talking snake, the deal with that. Um, the, 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 the driving question that this part of scripture is wanting to answer is this. The driving question is this. What is wrong with humanity? What is wrong with humanity? And scripture assumes a couple things. One, that there is something that should be right. And in the early chapters of Genesis, we see this vision of what should be right. We see a couple things. One, we see that men and women are made in the image of God. They're meant to reflect image of They're meant to reflect God's character, his creativity, his goodness, his generosity into the world. 
They're, 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 they're these specially designed creatures to reflect God's image. And then two, we also see that men and women are made to be um, guardians or caretakers of this world. You could say sub-rulers underneath God. So we, this, this is kind of the, the noble vision of humanity laid out in the first chapters of Genesis. That's how things ought to be. But if you've lived in this world for any amount of time, you've had experiences where, where, where whether it's something you personally happens to you or something you realize in your own heart or something you read on the news, but we have these moments of it's not the way it's supposed to be. Like things happen and we have these moments where we say it shouldn't be that way. You know what I'm talking about? And, and, and Genesis recognizes this. That there's things in the world where it shouldn't be that way. And Genesis says that something happened and continues to happen in the lives of men and women. Namely, this, this grabbing, this taking, this grasping after being godlike. That, um, that Eve and Adam, the first man and woman, they, they grasped after being like God, making themselves the center of their own lives, creating their own versions of morality, depending on themselves alone. It's this grasping, and that leads to death. Spiritual death and relational death and physical death. This is the, the vision uh, given in the early chapters of Genesis. And so I just want to ask, like, do you, do you feel the, the nobility and tragedy that both exist in, in humankind? Like this, that we are like these master renaissance paintings covered in mud. This, I mean, do you feel these things? Do you feel the, the, the nobility of being human? And at the same time, do you see places where that's just not how it's meant to be? This morning, we're, we're moving towards Philippians 2, and that's where we're going to really be this morning. And, and I just want to talk about how Philippians 2, 5 through 11, is about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And what I want to explore with you this morning is how Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is, the, is God's addressing of these realities. What's wrong with humanity? And if I had to summarize it, kind of in what we read in Genesis 3, it takes place in this place called Eden, where things go wrong in Eden. And if I had to summarize what we're going to read in Philippians 2, I'd say it's reversing Eden. And if you're, if you're taking notes, and I, and, and I was just going to, if I'm going to give you one sentence that summarizes what we're going to talk about today, this is what it would be. It would be that, that God became like us so that we could become like him. God became like us so that we could become like him. And that's what I think we're going to see this morning. And so uh, we're going to move now to Philippians 2. If you'd like to follow along, uh, that's going to be way to the right in your Bible. It's after Galatians, Ephesians, then Philippians, and then right before, right after that is Colossians. So we're going to be in Philippians 2. We're going to look at verses 5 through 11. You're welcome to follow along in your own Bible. The words will also be on the screen. And uh, we did this last week, and I'd like to do it again. In Jesus and Paul's day... Uh, people would stand for the reading of Scripture to honor it, and then they'd sit for the teaching. And I just find this to be such a powerful, compelling uh, part of Scripture. I would, I would pre- Let's stand together for its reading, just to honor what we hear read this morning. So this is Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Paul writes to his friends in Philippi, "...in your relationships with one another." 
have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All right, you may be seated. Oh dear, the image of God is, is looking, it's bleeding. <laughs> One second. Is that some kind of metaphor or something there? What's going on there? Oh man, that really helps it. This really is a metaphor. Okay, we're going to leave that there. Looks like my walls at home after my children have been, never mind. Um, so uh, this is what I, I want to talk about this idea of how Philippians, um, this, what we just read, how it's um, the retelling of the story of Jesus in a way that demonstrates that God became like us so that we might become like him. And so I just want to walk through it. It starts in, um, Paul's description of Jesus starts in verse 6. And uh, I want to read, this is a, a slightly different translation. But it says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God. And then earlier we read the phrase, something to be used to his own advantage. But that phrase, something to be used to his own advantage, is actually one word in Greek. And that one word can be translated different ways. And some translations translate it, something to be grasped. That Jesus did not grasp. And so in, in Philippians 2, 6, we get this, we get this idea that, that Jesus was in very nature God. So that you, you, you might say that Jesus, he was, even, he was even more than the image of God. He was fully God. And in and, and this phrase, in the very nature of God, it's, I think it evokes the way that men and women were made in the image of God. That, that Jesus not only was in, he in the image of God, he was, he was in very nature God, even more than that. And that Jesus, being fully God, became fully human and faced the same temptation that men and women faced to grasp after this self-centered God-likeness. But Jesus, he does not grasp. And in fact, Jesus enters into the human experience all the way. He, he not only faces the temptation that humans face and refuse it, but he enters, he even takes the consequences of the grasping upon himself. And he enters into the human experience all the way down into death itself, the depths of the human experience. And not just any kind of depth, death on the cross, the most humiliating death known in that time and place. And then we read that therefore God raises him up and exalts him and makes him Lord of all. And I think there's this, this, again, it evokes 
that in the way that men and women were meant to be sub-rulers over this world. I think Philippians 2 here is evoking that Jesus kind of fulfills that calling of men and women and even goes above and beyond it. He, not, he's not just a sub-ruler, he's Lord of all. But the, but the image is that, that Jesus kind of, he enters into the human experience, kind of like a, a hand in a glove. He becomes fully human all the way to the very depths of the experience. And then God raises him up out of it. And and and. and what I'm trying to get at here is this, that I think a lot of times when we, when we, we, talk, about, we talk about how Jesus rescues us, and a lot of times I think when we talk about Jesus saving, a lot of times we talk about it in kind of individual legal terms, and that's good and true. So what, what I mean is we'll, we'll say like, I have wronged God, I've, I've broken God's law, and, I, and I'm kind of in court, and I'm supposed to be punished, but Jesus steps in and, and takes that upon himself. Something like these individual legal terms. And Scripture does talk about God, God's rescuing in that way, but that's not the only way Scripture talks about God's rescue. The, the scripture has all sorts of other ways to talk about how Jesus rescues us, and one of them, in Philippians 2, we don't hear any of that legal language. Instead, in Philippians 2, we get the sense that, that it's, that it's like Jesus, he enters fully into the human experience like a hand in a glove. He takes it all upon himself. He fully reflects God's image. He refuses the temptation to grasp. He enters all the way to the depths, death itself, the very consequences of our rebellion. It goes all the way down. And because he does that, he lives the life we're meant to live and he dies the death we're meant to die. Because he does that fully and rightly, he's raised up even above even above the high place, the noble place that God intended for men and women. Many of the early leaders in the Jesus movement, the early church fathers, they talked about this. And I just want to read a few quotes for us today. Irenaeus, he said it this way, he said, Jesus Christ, through his transcendent love, became what we are that he might bring us to be even what he is himself. Athanasius said it even more succinctly, that he was made man that we might be made God. Or as I said earlier, God became like us so that we might become like him. And when I say that we might be, be like him, I, 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 just, I don't want to get confused there. I don't mean that literally we will become like all-powerful, all-knowing beings, Jafar at the end of a ladder without the land. You know this, like, that's not, we don't get the omnis, the omniscient, the omnipresent. We, that's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying what I am saying is something like this, that, that men and women in our, kind of in the, in our made in the image of Godness, in our, sub, our calling to be sub-rulers, that we're made to fully reflect God's creativity, His generosity. We're made to live eternal lives, immortal lives with Him. That we're, meant, we're, we're meant to be immersed in His Spirit and fully knowing and rightly relating to Him. And, and that you, you could say that the Son of God became a man, that men and women be, could become sons and daughters of God, that there's this God descends into the full experience of humanity to scoop us up and to pull us up with him. God became like us that we might become like him. There's a story that, um, that a Christian, uh, his name was Soren Kierkegaard, he lived in Denmark uh, 
in the 1800s that he tells that kind of capture this. I want to tell this story because I think it, it taps into what I'm trying to communicate this morning. Kierkegaard, he tells a story, it's called, he often told parables, and this one's called The King and the Maiden. And uh, he tells a story, and he goes like this. He said, imagine, imagine a king, the most powerful king in the world. This king had armies so large, no one would even dare come against his kingdom. He had wealth so great, he could purchase anything in the world. The, the world had never seen a king like this king. And imagine one day this king is going through one of his villages, and he meets a young woman. And he is smitten. And he finds this woman to be uh, a woman of outward beauty and inward beauty. And he wants to get to know her. He, he falls in love with her. He wants to marry her. And he goes back to his castle and he's sitting and thinking. And this king, the most powerful king in the world, is racked with anxiety. And he thinks to himself, okay. I, I could send my servants and they could, they could, they could uh, bring her to my castle and, and I could give her gifts. I could give her jewels and I could give her gowns and I could throw balls and we could, we could, we could travel the world. I could show her my kingdom and, and I could show her the kind of the wealth and the power that, would, that she would have if she married me. But, but if she married me, I would always wonder, does she love me for me or does she love all the trappings that come with me? And so he says, well, maybe instead I will, I'll, I will go and, and I'll go to her. I'll go to, I'll go to her village. And, and he thinks about how he travels to his kingdom. And he remembers how when he travels to his kingdom, he always has soldiers in armor going ahead of him. And he has men with trumpets and flags. And, and he imagines showing up and, and maybe she's in her, in her home and making bread one morning. And all of a sudden trumpets are blaring in through her window and she's terrified. And maybe she would decide to go with the king just out of fear alone. And the king thinks, I would still wonder, does she love me for me or just out of fear? And the king wonders, how will I ever know that she truly loves me for me? I must become like her. I must humble myself even lower than her. And he decides to become a beggar and take a beggar's cloak. And go to her village that she might love him for him. Kierkegaard has a line. For it is only in love that the unequal can be made equal. He had this notion that, that he must become like her if she will be raised up to be like him. There is this descent of God. To meet us in our condition. That he would pull us up to be like him. God became like us. That we might be like him. So I just, perhaps a question for us this morning. What is your response? How do you respond to this? I mean, I don't mean to shout answers out, but to yourself and your heart, what is your response to this? I want to talk for a minute this morning about 
one particular uh, way a person might respond to this. And I want to talk about what it might mean to what it might mean to affirm this, believe this, trust in this for the first time. What it might mean for the first time to say, I'm in. I, Jesus, I believe you did that for me and I trust my life to you. And, uh, and I'd actually like this morning, I'd like to give an opportunity if you want, if you want to decide today I trust in this for the first time. In a, in a little bit, I'm going to pray a prayer and show and talk about how you might trust and believe in this for the first time. It's a bit like, it's a bit like wedding vows, deciding to trust in Jesus. Wedding vows, they're very simple words that changes a person's life. Deciding to trust and follow Jesus is a bit like that. They're very simple words that you say to God that radically changes your life. And so there's kind of two people I want to I um, invite that you might do that this morning. One, if, if you, perhaps you came in here today and you came in this morning and you would have said, I'm not a Christian, I don't follow Jesus, I'm, I'm here with a friend, I'm here checking this out. But perhaps this morning you have felt God and you have felt invited by God into his story to trust your life to him. If that is you in a moment, I'm going to pray and I'd invite you to pray with me. And the other person that I'd invite this morning is sometimes deciding to trust your life to God, deciding to trust your life to Jesus, sometimes it's a bit like waking up. You might not know exactly when it happened. That for some people, they have this experience where perhaps six months ago, you would have said, I am not a Christian. I do not follow Jesus. But perhaps this morning you realize, I, I, actually, I actually do believe this. I actually do trust Jesus. And I'm not even sure exactly when that shifted inside of me, but I recognize it has. But even as that shifts, it's still good to, ha- to say, and today I want to plant a flag. I want to plant a flag and say, I am in, Jesus, I trust you. And so whether you're deciding this morning or whether you're recognizing something that you have, something that has shifted inside of you over the last months, I want to give an opportunity to do that. And so what I'm going to do now, I'm going to pray and I would invite you, if you're, if you're in that, if you want to either make that decision or plant that flag this morning, just silently in your heart, you can even use your own words, take my words, make them your own, um, and to say these words to God. That sound good? All right. Join me if that is you. Jesus, I believe... Uh, I believe that you made all things and you made me in your image. And yet at the same time, there are many ways that I have grasped after things I shouldn't. I've made things other than you the center of my life. Jesus, thank you for coming, becoming a man, dying on the cross to rescue me. Jesus, today I surrender my life in your hands. I trust you as my rescuer and my king. I pray this in your name. Amen. Wedding vows. Simple words that changes one's life.
I want to ask, if you prayed that with me this morning, I want to ask a favor of you. I, one of the other pastoral staff, we, we would deeply want to know that, to celebrate with you, and just ask how we could support you. And so if that was you, would you please do this? In a moment, we're going to do communion in a moment, and then after that, we're going to have an offering. And in the offering, uh, people will be dropping those connect cards that Christian talked about into the offering bags uh, for various things, just to let us know we're here, to sign up for something. But if you prayed with me this morning, would you put your name, your email, your phone number on the front, and then on the back, just put something like, planted my flag today, trusted Jesus, I prayed with Tim. Something like that. Would you do that for me? Because I would love to contact you and just say, um, celebrate, and how can I support you? So we're going to now, we're going to move into a time of communion together. And I think communion, for those of us who um, are walking with Jesus, communion is a very appropriate way to respond to remember, like we've just remembered how Jesus became like us, that we might become like him. And I think communion is a very appropriate way to respond to that. There's this interesting um, connection between, you know that section uh, that we read to start in Genesis 3, the taking and eating? There's this interesting connection between that and Jesus' final meal with his friends and followers. In, in Genesis 3, we heard how We heard how the man and woman, they took and ate. It was this grasping. They took and ate. And it's fascinating because the next time we find those verbs occurring together in Scripture is in Jesus' final meal with his followers. And I just want to read this to you. This is from Matthew uh, 26. This is Jesus' final meal with his followers. It says, While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. One scholar talking about the connection between Genesis 3 and Jesus' final meal says it this way. He said, God would suffer poverty and death before the words take and eat would become words of salvation. That that our, our, our grasping to be godlike in the worst sense of the word, our grasping is what leads us out of Eden. But it's not grasping that gets us back right with God. It's God's giving and our receiving that gets us right with God. And if grasping let us out, it's giving that leads us back in. That, it's, that, that when, we come, when we come to the table, when we, 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 we take the bread and the cup, that it's receiving from God. It's God saying, let me give to you what you should take and eat. Don't take and eat on your own. Let me give to you. Receive. And so when we come to the table as Jesus follows, we receive from him. We receive spiritual life from him. We receive a vision of of how we are meant to live from him. We receive his spirit from him to empower us to live the lives we're meant to live. We receive from him that he is the God 
who became like us that we might be like him. And so the way of Jesus is the way of receiving from the God who gives. And as we come to the table, we recenter on this truth. So I'd like to lead us in that now. Some of you have been asked to be servers for communion this morning. I want to invite you, if you're serving this morning, to come forward. And the way we, uh, the way we serve communion here at Hillcrest is uh, we have two stations up front, and we have three stations in the back. And the station in the back in the center will be our gluten-free station, if that's helpful for you. In a moment, I'll pray, and then after that, you're welcome to form lines at whatever station. There's no rush. You can take your time. When your heart's ready, come and form lines. And when you get to the front of the line, uh, one server will offer you the bread and say, the body of Christ was given for you. And you can take of it and dip it in the cup. And the person with the cup will say, the blood of Christ was shed for you. And then you can eat of that uh, before you head back to your seats. And this, this act of centering on um, this posture of receiving from God. Christians have done this for 2,000 years. And so, and I just want to say, if you're here today and, um, and, it, and you, you'd say, hey, I'm still not there. We're, we're glad for you to be here. We want you to feel comfortable. Don't feel like you have to pretend or fake it. It's, it's totally appropriate to sit and observe um, as we do this uh, recentering on Jesus. So let me pray for us. And then when you're ready, you're invited to come forward. Jesus, um, I, uh, over and over again, I am struck by the inadequacies of words to express the uh, divine mystery of you, the creator of all things, not only becoming a human, but going all the way down to death itself. And what that means, uh, what that has meant for men and women through time, and what that means for each one of our individual lives even here this morning. May we never trivialize or hold lightly uh, this incredible truth. Would you even now this morning speak to us? Even now this morning, if there are uh, some of us who are meant to enter into your story and trust you this morning, would you speak in the stillness of our hearts? Invite us to walk with you. Thank you, Jesus. In your name, amen. Thanks for connecting with Hillcrest Chapel. For more info on this and other sermons, go online to hillcrestchapel.com or visit us at 1400 Larrabee Ave in Bellingham, Washington any Sunday morning, 9 or 11 a.m.